0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations events podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good morning, good evening, and welcome. My name is Jessica Bissett, and I'm Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China relations. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for this very timely and important program on U.S.-China higher education relations. For today's program, we're delighted to partner with the Penn Project on the Future of U.S.-China Relations, which is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania's Center for the Study of Contemporary China. As we all know, the downturn in U.S.-China relations has strained once robust educational and research ties. Both sides have contributed to the deterioration. China has restricted opportunities for contact between American and Chinese scholars and students, while in the United States, concerns about national security, intellectual property loss, Chinese competitiveness, and pro-China views on U.S. campuses have triggered a variety of responses on and off campus. Are the core American values of open research and academic freedom at risk? What do we lose as we cut ourselves off from one another? We are joined here today by four terrific scholars to further explore these questions. I will only briefly introduce them now as their complete bios may be found in our event page. First, our moderator. Jacques Delisle, is the Stephen A. Cozen Professor of Law, Professor of Political Science, Director of the Center for the Study of Contemporary China, and the co-leader of the Penn Project and the Future of US-China Relations at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the, the director of the Asia program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Professor Dalil writes on China's engagement with the international order and international law, U.S.-China relations, domestic legal institutional change in China, Taiwan and cross-strait relations, and Hong Kong. Jock is also a member of the National Committee. Now on to our panelists, all of whom are fellows of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals program. Mary Gallagher is the Amy and Alan Lowenstein Professor of Democracy, Democratization, and Human Rights at the University of Michigan and Director of its International Institute. She is an expert on Chinese politics, law and society, and labor politics, and is on the board of the National Committee. Rory Truix is an Assistant Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. His research focuses on Chinese politics and authoritarian systems. Finally, we have Maggie Lewis. Maggie is a professor of law at Seton Hall University. Her research focuses on law in China and Taiwan with an emphasis on criminal justice. She is joining us today from Taipei, where she is a visiting scholar at the Judges Academy and a visiting professor at Academia Sinica. Our three panelists are Next Generation Fellows at the aforementioned Penn Project on the Future of US-China Relations and develop papers on today's topics that have just been updated this spring. The link to the papers can be found in the chat box. Now quickly onto the run of show. Each panelist will speak for about five minutes. They will then engage in discussion with Jock and one another and end with audience questions. To ask a question, please click the Q&A icon located at the bottom of your screen and type in it. Please include your name and affiliation and specify to whom you are directing your question if applicable. Please note that the meeting is on the record and being recorded and the video will be posted on our website in about a week or so. And with that, now I'd like to turn it over to Jacques. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks, Jessica, and thanks everyone for joining us today. Special thanks to Mary, Maggie, and Rory uh, for their participation in our project and, and today's event. I can't think of a better group of people to discuss this. I think we're going to run this as conversationally as possible, so I've asked our speakers to dispense with the formal opening statements, but I promise they'll have a chance to get to the points that they want to make in our discussion today and that you can see developed in more detail in the papers for the project. Uh, So we're gonna spend a good chunk of our time today, I'm sure, talking about the ways in which we're getting things wrong and the ways in which we may get things right in dealing with the issues that uh, Jess just gave us an overview of. But uh, as a a sort of stage setting uh, measure here, I think it's important to address uh, where there are some legitimate concerns. So what are, in your views, the legit concerns on the US side about China, about Chinese scholars and students and PRC-linked organizations uh, operating in the United States. How how would you characterize them or categorize them and how serious are they? Uh, so let me start with Maggie on that.
2: Well, thanks, Jacques, and, and thanks to the National Committee and to the Penn Project, as well as the additional funders, the Luce Foundation and the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Uh, So let me be clear, you know, there are legit national security concerns and and I think we're all very much in agreement in that, Um, but it is this question of what are those concerns, how big are they, and what kind of response should we have? And and I do think that the US government can do a better job, I'm not saying it's easy, but a better job grappling with this twin concern that you do have um, national security concerns emanating from the PRC party state, and that go beyond traditional spying. But at the same time, we have this threat by association stigma that is attaching to people who are of Chinese ethnicity and or of PRC nationality. And in this increased competition between the US and China, um, some of this is about the flow of human capital. And that's just called recruiting people, you know, paying the money for jobs. But when does it go beyond transparent, just to sort of bargaining and trying to like give the best deal to get someone to come and work in your country to actually incentivizing or directing people to either lie on government's statements, whether it be for a grant or other filing, to not declare um, money that they're receiving or that they have in foreign bank accounts, or even go so far that there is theft of intellectual property. And so what I, as a criminal law professor, have been focusing on is the Department of Justice's China Initiative. And this started uh, in the November of 2018, so under Trump, but we'd seen uh, a ratcheting up in the securitization of the US-China relationship, even under Obama. And they're the real, like the nubble, the concern when it started was economic espionage. So this is trade secret theft, but when the intended beneficiary is a foreign government or an entity that has a close nexus with a foreign government. In the first two years of the China Initiative, there were only a handful of cases that were actually for this economic or industrial espionage, about five, and total of about 10 trade secret theft cases. Um, More cases having to do, again, with false statements and people who are seen as having compromising relationships, which I think Rory will talk more about, or otherwise um, not being um, fully transparent and disclosing what they needed to to disclose under US law. Uh, And what we've seen though, and what I'm concerned about is that the security consciousness pendulum has swung too far, and that we're not just deterring the negative, the illegal behavior, but it's creating a chilling effect, both of projects in the short term that could be very important to the US's economy and, and competitiveness and even things like health, which of course is so important today. But also in a longer term, um, are we going to be able to attract and retain the best and brightest minds for research and science going forward? Uh, and just finally want to point out that even Though there haven't been that many cases under the China initiative, we're talking dozens, although there's not like a set firm number, uh, that the FBI director, Christopher Wray, has said on a number of occasions that a China-related case is opened every 10 hours. There's a couple thousand cases in the pipeline. So we have seen this, um, this real coalescing of resources, and that is continuing so far under the Biden administration. So I'll just I'll start with that um, and then pass it on to the, uh, to the next person.
1: So Rory, you've been focusing some on what's been going on on campuses on this front and have, have written about uh, the difficulty of assessing the magnitude of the, the risks that we face. So can you uh, speak to these issues?
3: Yeah, and um, just to build on, on what Maggie was saying. So when I think of sort of the broad buckets of, of issues confronting U.S. universities with respect to China, that there are three. The first is uh, what Maggie was speaking about, which is this um, concern about espionage. Or theft of intellectual property through so-called non-traditional intelligence collectors, which is um, code speak for uh, researchers and students. Um, as Maggie was hinting at, there are, have been a number of cases open, but the actual number of um, investigations and excuse me arrests um, is quite low. And the actual number of espionage cases um, prosecuted, like actual espionage cases among um, at uni- U.S. universities, I believe Maggie is zero, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. If it's not zero, it's very close to zero. So this is a fundamental issue with all all the issues I'll speak about today, which is that we know there is probably some nefarious activity going on, some things that we are probably not terribly excited about, but we simply don't know the scope and scale. Um, And there is a problem in in that type of environment where we might overcorrect or overreact to the issue. So there's the espionage and theft issue. The other two buckets, um, which I would just raise at the outset, is research access and exchange in China for foreign scholars, Um, in addition to, of course, the research environment in China itself. But traditionally, the scholarly community has been an important conduit of information and understanding between the two societies. And it's increasingly becoming clear that, um, to quote my colleague Ben Lieben, Uh, that China no longer wants to be studied. China no longer wants to be researched. Um, And so we see this manifest itself in different ways. The Chinese government has sanctioned think tanks um, and individual researchers uh, in particular for speaking about about the Xinjiang issue. Um, And so this is of concern, should be of concern to U.S. universities. Can we reliably have research exchange um, in, in a safe way, both for our professors, but also for our graduate students and undergraduates? Uh, And then the third bucket of issues, which um, I think Mary's the real expert on, and I think she'll get a chance to speak on, is sort of the influence of China on the intellectual climate on U.S. campuses. Um, We know that with the recent passage of the national security law, for example, which has a strong extraterritoriality provision, um, there's sort of a chilling effect, or or the potential, I should say, of a chilling effect of discourse about China outside of China. Um, And you couple that with Some of the other things that we know might be happening in particular, um, monitoring um, or reporting on Chinese citizens um, by agents of the Chinese state as they they study in the U.S. or or operate on U.S. campuses um, and other influences through CSSAs and and potentially through Confucius Institutes. Those are all the kind of the list of concerns under the broad bucket of um, is the Chinese government affecting the intellectual climate on U.S. campuses I think of this issue of the three is is actually the most manageable and under the direct control of us universities and again it's an issue which is real but again um is one we need to be wary of over corrections and we can talk more about that in the rest of the panel so i'll turn it over to mayor
1: okay uh, thanks rory so uh, mary do you want to take us through this issue of the impact on U.S. campuses, uh, openness for are the liberal academic values that, that we tend to uh, hold fairly dear, and, and just how how big an issue are things like the Chinese scholars and students associations and the uh, Confucius Institutes?
4: Let me unmute myself. Thanks, Jacques, and thanks to Maggie and Rory for setting this up. Um, Yeah, my paper which everyone can read through the chat link um, focuses on this issue of campus environment and um, the presence of organizations that are either directly funded or affiliated with the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party. Um, And I argue in the paper that these organizations do pose a threat to our campus climate and to the freedom of expression and freedom of association of students, uh, scholars and staff um, on the campus, both Chinese and and not Chinese. These organizations do so in very subtle ways, um, not usually in some glaring example of censorship or or overt promotion of Chinese government official views. And so it's very important to understand kind of the organizational foundation of these um, organizations like the Confucius Institutes and in some cases, Chinese student and scholar associations. However, and this gets to the things that Maggie is focusing on. It's really important to not conflate these issues with the other issues of non-traditional espionage. I don't believe there are cases in the China Initiative that directly link these organizations to examples either of non-traditional espionage or some kind of conflict of commitment, conflict of interest, or violation of intellectual property. So it's it's important to separate those. Um, Those things which also sometimes have an organizational component, for example, through some of the foreign recruitment programs or through funding by the Chinese National Science Foundation, but those are separate entities and those entities are mostly based in China. The damage that these types of organizations do to our campus climate are really, um, it's important to conceptualize conceptualize these as Damages to um, the way in which our society is organized in a pluralistic way that tolerates a diversity of views. It's very important in in the overcorrection problem that we don't overcorrect and try to shut down views, but rather to allow for the promotion of diverse views, including views that may be positive towards the Chinese government or in in agreement with Chinese government views. So the paper is really focused on this issue of organizational challenges, moving away from a focus on individuals that do bad things. Uh, And I'm, of course, in agreement with the need for universities to have, have better processes in place to manage conflict of commitment, conflict of interest, to protect IPR, to protect research. But we also need to do more to protect our pluralist associations, student freedom of association, and student freedom of expression. And most importantly, I want to just end on this point, this best protects Chinese students on American campuses who have selected out of Chinese education to come to the United States to take advantage of this um, academic environment. And in particular, uh, protecting our pluralist organizations and uh, these freedoms protects the most marginalized voices within China, including people from Hong Kong, people in Xinjiang, other ethnic minorities, and people in China who may hold views that are in opposition to their own government. So thank you.
1: Thanks, I think it was a great uh, set of issues to start with here. I'm gonna weave in a couple of questions that we've gotten in the the, uh, Q&A function partly before the session and, and now, and I do encourage people to put their questions in the Q&A box and we'll try to weave them in as we go along as well as turning to them uh, fully a bit uh, later. But I think one of the things that comes through all three of the papers and some of the other papers in this project uh, is the need to differentiate. Not all Chinese companies are closely linked to the party state, not all Chinese organizations are uh, united front uh, 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 type entities and that we have seen this, this kind of blunderbuss approach and we've seen some of this in the technology space as well where a lot of the argument is about uh, how broadly to cast the net in defining security-sensitive technology. The sort of uh, small-yard, high-fence argument is the counter to some of the broad sweep that uh, you've heard uh, Maggie and Rory in particular uh, critique. Um, so i we'll pl- plumb a little uh, farther in some questions that come into the Q&A. Uh, one is the the question about how we balance all of this, that is, um, you've talked about the gains and the costs uh, to, uh, to the kind of measures that have been taken, but one of our question actually Adam, uh, Grim, uh, raises, uh, the question of, of, of uh, the broader issue of the China challenge, as it were, that is geopolitical and commercial competition. And this is a variation on the argument that the kind of openness you're talking about, at least from some views, uh, risks helping China in a relationship that's increasingly being characterized as a competitive. So what's the answer to that kind of concern? Anybody can start with that who wants to? um...
4: I can just say one thing about this. I mean, you know, obviously, the way that the Biden administration has framed the U.S.-China relationship is is clearly in the direction of continued competition in all realms, um, partly probably to motivate US domestic society to make changes um, ourselves, which I completely support. Um, However, this idea that becoming more isolated from China as a way to uh, weaken China, I think the, the, the really broad concern or the most serious concern is that what will happen is that the United States will only isolate itself. And that's completely the case when we think about higher education, which is already globalized. So if the United States becomes more shut down to international students, um, this will harm the United States. And it will really not hurt China. It will probably benefit other universities in, in places like England. Uh, in the UK and Australia and Canada, where these students who have been preparing to go to the United States, uh, they'll look at what the United States looks at now. It looks very closed. Uh, looks potentially hostile to Chinese students. Uh, they'll just go to another country. So I don't think um, framing the the problem of geopolitical competition with China as a meet, as a as a excuse to make us more closed um, will only shoot ourselves in the foot.
3: Yeah, and and just to bells... oh, Maggie, did you?
2: So, just two points on the geopolitical competition, and and one thing that concerns me too is taking that framing of U.S.-China competition into the realm of criminal law, where there is actually a person, perhaps a. An entity like a corporation but usually it's an individual person who's going to have their liberty taken away and that i worry that if there is this general existential china threat it takes away the focus about what did this individual person do and has that criminal behavior been proved beyond a reasonable doubt and when you look at the language being used in the china initiative there's you know the powerpoint slides that will say things like what has china stolen or you know re- Made in China 2025, roadmap to theft. And, and speaking of China in this sort of anthropomorphized form, like it can actually go and steal a corn seed or tapy the robot's arm. Uh, and so I really want to make sure that in the criminal realm that we keep the focus on individual behavior and don't wrap it up into this existential threat. Um, and then just also going to um, Mary's point, I worry about own goals. Uh, I am not generally someone who is quoted favorably by the China Daily, um, but they did because I was criticizing my own government about its, um, how it's going about enforcing the criminal law. And, and so here, there is an awareness of the rising discrimination and actual violence against AAPI and foreign nationals in the US. Uh, and I do think, especially now, where we have this tense US-China relationship, that it's, um, it's incumbent on us to be really careful about our language, because we can simultaneously criticize the PRC leadership and party state, and also criticize the US government Government for the way sometimes it talks about China, but it requires careful language.
3: Uh, and I, I just wanted to add a little bit uh, about Mary's point about um, the kind of efforts to isolate the US. I, there's a, a broader um, line of thinking around this issue, which is effectively academic decoupling. Um, we need to stop training so many Chinese citizens, uh, especially in our PhD programs in STEM. That's a, a lot of the legislation that came out in the last two years of the trump administration generally had that that um, sentiment behind it and i think one of the key issues here as people think about um, the problem of intellectual theft um, is that we tend to focus on the bad actors the bad behavior that is worrisome and then forget the overwhelmingly uh overwhelming benefits that the u.s gets from this type of relationship there are over a hundred thousand uh, Chinese citizens uh, at the graduate level and beyond studying STEM at US universities in a given year. Um, we, Again, as Maggie has already discussed, we've only had a handful of cases, um, which means that for all intents and purposes, for every one bad actor, there are thousands if not tens of thousands of Chinese citizens that are here contributing to the US research enterprise and most importantly, that want to stay according to data from the NSF, 90 percent of Chinese PhD students want to come and assimilate and become US citizens. So this is a tremendous win for the United States. Um, and to shut off that relationship would again, accelerate the rise of, of institutions outside of the United States, accelerate the rise of Chinese institutions. So I think the one of the issues I see a lot of the coverage around this, this type of, of, of uh, problem is that there's so much focus on the cases of theft or espionage and so forth, and not enough cases uh, uh, coverage of, of all the contributions that Chinese citizens and Chinese Americans are making.
1: Um. Okay, we have a, another related question before we move on to the next uh, topic, which is uh, sort of the feasibility of dealing with the problems, the part of the problems that you were a- acknowledging as legitimate ones, uh, that is given our model of, of science and research, uh, is it even possible to keep basic science uh, locked down, to keep it uh, from spreading? And should we try given the cost? That's a question from Paul Baskin. Uh, Rory, you were sort of speaking to that. Do you want to take that on first?
3: Yeah, I, I can uh, try to speak to that. So I think um, to the question, I, I think there is an inherent vulnerability, vulnerability in our model of science. It's the open science model code is published. Uh, work is presented in open forum. And almost all research at uni- US universities follows this model. And so even if we eliminate uh, Chinese PhD students in certain areas the research itself is, is still going to be published and put out in the open so it's unclear how one even uh, stops this issue even if one were to take the most extreme approach. Um, so I, I think that's an inherent vulnerability in our model of science but that doesn't mean the model is broken and in fact that's what makes the U.S. an attractive place to do research and that's what's propelled our uni- U.S. universities ahead of the rest of the world in, in many respects. So. I think we need to accept that some bad behavior is going to happen and, um, and, and just tolerate that as a reality. That said, I don't think we should just throw up our hands and say we can't do anything. I think it sounds like uh, because of the shift in U.S.-China relations, there's sort of a moment right now where uh, U.S. universities are going to have to think critically about what types of relationships with China are productive and helpful and what types uh, tend to do pose unnecessary risk. And so I think there needs to be a moment where U.S. universities, perhaps in concert with, with the U.S. government, think through the different types of relationships. So, for example, is it to the benefit of the U.S. university or the U.S. government for people to be participating in talent programs, which is not illegal, um, but it, according to the U.S. government, it is a cause for concern. And so we need to be thinking about that type of relationship. And if the answer is we don't want people to be jointly employed by U.S. and Chinese academic institutions, then... That needs to be instituted in policy, and in people who are currently in that type of relationship uh, need to, it needs to be rolled back. So I, I think there, there are certain things that we can do that are consistent with our values um, and potentially stop some of the more problematic relationships. But I, I agree with the spirit of the question that uh, some, some degree of bad behavior is inevitable in our system, and that doesn't mean that the system is broken.
1: We have another question that's sort of on this theme that I want to weave in from Bart Edish, uh, and he asks: Are any American? This is I'll ask to Mary first. Uh, Are any American universities doing background screening of Chinese students? Is there subtle or not so subtle U.S. government pressure on universities to investigate the background of the Chinese students they admit? Would that kind of screening be unethical or or a problem under university policies?
4: Um- I actually don't know the answer to that question on the undergraduate or graduate level in terms of students seeking degrees at the in American universities. Um, the, uh, there's something like 350,000 uh, Chinese students in the United States at any given year, and um, a large number of them are now undergraduates or master's students or PhD students seeking degrees. Um, It is increasingly the case that Chinese visiting scholars that are coming here um, or on postdocs are going to be um, investigated with background checks uh, because of the higher levels of oversight That really started, I think, with the Trump administration, but have continued into the Biden administration. Um, And I think that's um, completely legitimate because, in in those cases, most of many of those uh, visiting scholars will be funded in some way by an entity that is based uh, in China, although not exclusively. Um, Chinese undergraduate students uh, and many graduate students nowadays are coming in as. self-financed students, right? Their parents are paying their tuition. So in most cases, they don't have close ties and are certainly not funded um, by the Chinese government. But whether or not there are background checks on every single um, Chinese undergrad, I, I have no idea.
1: It would seem to be a rather daunting uh, task to, to uh, screen that many uh, people, but, but certainly the pressure is up on that. Uh, Maggie, do you want to speak to those two questions or should we move on to our next uh, segment?
2: Um, we can we can keep going. I think we have got a lot okay. of questions from you.
1: We we do, and so I want to turn to uh, to I think the next sort of cluster of issues, which is uh, each of you in your papers have uh, criticisms of the way these uh, dangers, that, these concerns that you've spoken about, are being addressed. Uh, sort of the sense in which. Uh, whether at the government level, at the university level, we've kind of been getting it wrong. And uh, we've talked about some of that in your earlier answers, but I invite you at this point to emphasize anything you think that we're doing wrong um, that we haven't gotten to yet. And what are the costs to doing it wrong? You've spoken to some of that as well. Uh, so without retreading some of the ground, I just want to give you a chance to put in other points that we haven't gotten to yet. Let me start with Marianason. So, yeah, so uh, my,
4: My big point about doing things wrong was about conflating the two issues. My paper is not um, um, naive about the impact of having organizations that are funded by the Chinese government or the Communist Party on campuses. I'm pretty negative about those things in the paper. But I do make it really clear that those things are not the same uh, as most of the things that are being investigated in the China initiative that Maggie is criticizing. Um, And so this conflating the, the threats are is, is really problematic because the solutions are not the same. Um, so, the and let me just say, I guess this is my pitch if somebody from the Department of Education or the Department of State or the Department of Defense is listening, um, you, the U.S. government absolutely has to fund higher education's ability to teach foreign languages, to teach area studies and to promote um, study and research abroad, particularly in places like China. So, the, the shutting down of the Fulbright um, um, pr- uh, project in, in both China and Hong Kong by the Trump administration was completely the wrong thing to do. We absolutely do not want to be l- limiting even more our access to do research and to study Chinese. At the same time, the U.S. government has to step up and, and fund universities that want to do that. Um, and that has not been the case for the last couple of decades, at least.
2: I- to jump in on that, um, I totally agree. I'm so upset with the um, stopping of the Fulbright and Hong Kong and China. Uh, I, I know no strategy that says, if you want to compete, know less about the entity you are competing with. Um, and I also do want to recognize that Rory and Mary and I um, are of an age where we were able to build our careers spending significant in-country time in China. And as Mary said, that's getting more difficult, uh, not only because of the pandemic, uh, but political reasons, um, thinking of risk. And then also, um, if people, if students want to come back and get security clearances, it's really hard to get data on this. Uh, But the um, conventional wisdom is be really careful how much in country time you spend and what you're doing, because it will likely make it more difficult for you to get security clearance. And we really do need that next generation of China analysts who have that time there on the ground. Uh, And I think that that's that's critical Um, Two about what what what's going wrong? What could the US government do better? And I recognize I'm an academic, it's easier said from the outside. Uh, but I do um, want to um, make clear that the U.S. government, and even the Department of Justice, is not a monolith. Uh, there's people working there that have a, a pretty, you know, really like deep understanding of China. But then, especially during Trump, we also had political appointees that had no problem grabbing a microphone and questioning the loyalty of a naturalized U.S. citizen um, or, you know, saying things about, yeah, some more people are going to be Han Chinese because they're That's what China has. So we're going to see more prosecutions like that instead of focusing on where the evidence would lead. But what I think the Biden administration has a real opportunity for course correction is speaking more with the scientific community because we've seen some uh, questionable ways that the science has been described in charging documents, uh, to speak more with the people who understand uh, the power and economics and structures within the PRC to understand when is an entity really of concern. And then also to speak more again with these AAPI Uh, and communities that are directly affected because in addition to wanting data on what the U.S. government is doing you really I think it's important to hear the lived experience of what it is like to be in the U.S. today and be uh, Asian um, and particularly Chinese and I recognize this is a very white panel so I mean I can't speak to that directly but I would encourage there's a lot of great panels including uh, Rory just did an event um, talking with uh, Professor Shaoxing Shi about his experience.
3: Rory? Yeah, and and actually, that's a a nice way to build on uh, what Maggie was saying. I think um, one of the tragedies of the last few years has been that for such a long time, U.S. universities and the U.S. government wanted more relationships in China. And individual professors or academics were incentivized and told to go out and build those sorts of relationships at the university's uh, behest. And all of a sudden, there's just been this complete sea change. And so those relationships that were built, um, which were once valued, are now viewed as a liability. And people who have very deep relationships in China and deep careers in China and the US at the same time, um, those folks, most of whom are Chinese American, frankly, feel like they don't know what they can do anymore. And there's just been a real chilling effect. And that's the one thing I've, I've learned from getting to know this community more is that there's a feeling that it's unclear what I can do, what I cannot do as a researcher anymore. And for that reason, I shouldn't do anything at all. Um, and so I think there is, um, we need to remember the human element to this. Um, there is a, a, a level of fear in the Chinese American scientific community right now that is very palpable. Um, many of these people um, have come from China to escape the CCP um, and to conduct science in the US. And so the, this idea that their loyalty is is I questioned or um, that they're now being the target of the US government is, is deeply problematic and, and insulting to them, um, especially given all the contributions they've made to our society. So that's sort of what's going wrong is there's there is this environment of fear and uncertainty and um, a lack of clarity as to what is okay and what is not okay. And in, in particular, when we look at some of the charging documents, um, there are some behaviors that are problematic, but there also are very standard Uh, academic behaviors that are lined up in a a document released by the DOJ. So I do think there needs to be a lot of trust building going on between US universities, the US government, and in particular, the Chinese American community and Chinese American scientific community to just talk openly about what's going on and and set standards for behavior um, moving forward. I I think that that trust building exercise uh, would go a long way.
1: Okay, I think we've uh, yeah, done something with inventory there of, of the costs and it's uh, it's quite stark. You suggest the loss to basic knowledge, the kind of research collaboration that can go along, uh, the threat to values of openness and exchange and the real human cost of people who see their careers uh, disrupted and potentially their liberties uh, engendered. Uh, and, and I just want to underscore one of the points that came up early in the discussion, which is this risk that we're creating uh, a dialogue of the deaf uh, if we wind up cutting off the kinds of access that each side has had to the other, which is you know, vital, uh, more outside the STEM field perhaps in, in terms of US-China relations, which I know is of interest uh, to this uh, audience. So um, I want to uh, get to a couple of uh, questions that also come in in the chat before we uh, move on to the next section, which loop us back a little bit to the question of the uh, impact of some of the phenomena that you're focusing on. This question, I think, also goes primarily, uh, at least first, uh, to Mary. uh, Ian Johnston, our friend up at Harvard, um, says, what is the evidence that Confucius Institute's presence on US campuses has led to a systematic change in the topics, the the US-China studies field studies, or the arguments made? What is the evidence that those who participate in CI activities come out of that exposure with more uh, pro-PRC? Attitudes, you know, essentially, how big a threat is this in practice? Do we have evidence of that it gets back a little to, to Rory's earlier point on the STEM side? That's uh, so why don't we address those. And then uh, the question about what to do about it. Uh, Ian asks, uh, what guardrails are needed, if any, to prevent a neo-McCarthyite or McCarthyist reaction to PRC impacts on academic research about China and the US? Uh, in other words, who lost China the second time? Uh, Mary?
4: Thanks, Thanks, Jack, and thanks, Ian, for these questions. And there's some other questions further down uh, in the Q&A that um, I think are are similar. So um, I want to make it clear, but these are questions particularly about the Confucius Institutes on American campuses. And as people probably know, many of them have already closed. Um, due to new um, legislation uh, by the federal government or pending legislation to make it more difficult to both have Confucius Institutes on campus and get U.S. government funding. Um, so in terms of the evidence, I mean, there are, there's very limited sort of systematic evidence on Confucius Institutes. There's a few things, and I think they're all cited in my piece. There's a recent uh, um, paper, I don't believe it's been published yet, on Chinese... Um, language teaching in Confucius Institutes and self-censorship. I have a lot of experience, I guess, as a participant observation, uh, as somebody directing a China uh, study center at a university with a Confucius Institute. And I can tell you that one of the main ways in which uh, the influence is felt is through the programming. So Confucius Institute's programming is overwhelmingly cultural, it's overwhelmingly about things that we might put into the bucket of good China. Um, And then what happens on university campuses that have uh, multiple sources of um, Chinese related programming, like a China study center, um, that center will become the the place where all the bad China programming is done. So it does create this sense of imbalance that the Confucius Institutes do a certain type of programming, that programming is anodyne, that programming is overwhelmingly um, not political, And then the issues that might be constituted as bad China, if we're talking about Xinjiang, or we're talking about human rights, or we're talking about cybersecurity, those things will be hosted at the other center. So it does create this imbalance. Now, of course, at many universities and at many smaller universities that don't have a lot of um, funding, um, there may be only one entity, the Confucius Institute, that's doing language training and cultural programming. So I think in those cases, the imbalance is even more pronounced, Um, but I can, perhaps answer these questions, some of them later. And then just as a related question about the Confucius Institutes, whether or not categorizing them uh, differently, at least in my paper, no. What I would argue for the Confucius Institutes is not to ban them outright on American soil, but simply to Um, promote a a model where they are not embedded within American universities governance structures. Um, And the funding is not shared. So these are freestanding civil society organizations that are tied to the Chinese uh, government, but that are not embedded within American universities. So not an outright ban, but rather a different structure that looks actually much more like uh, the Alliance Francaise or other organizations on American soil that are funded by foreign
1: governments. So let's just follow on to that and, and turn to a topic about what we should be doing, right? We've, we've uh, discussed the nature of the problem. We've done some criticisms of the flaws and the approaches we see. Uh, but your papers and our broader project is focused a lot on offering, hopefully, some fairly practical and uh, reasonable policy advice. So Mary, in your comments just now, you got into a bit of that with the Confucius Institutes. Can you uh, expand on that with other things that you would prescribe uh, for dealing with the problems you're focused on? Then I'll turn to Maggie and Rory to address those questions. Uh,
4: I think there's a lot of, um suggestions at the end of the paper, some for universities um, and administrators at universities and some for the US government. I've already done my pitch about foreign language and area studies funding by the government. Within universities, I think there should be much less complacency, complacency around the academic environment and needing to do much more to promote a diversity of organizations on campus, either for Chinese students or for organizations that do China related programming and to really focus on allowing for a diversity of views. So when in talking about, for example, the Chinese Student and Scholars Associations, in no way should one CSSA be labeled the official organization for Chinese students on American campuses. We know what that means when we hear that word in China, right? We know what an official Uh, organization means. um, And that can put real pressure on Chinese students to know that this is the organization that's going to be most closely tied to the government, most closely tied to the embassy and the consulate. So I think there should be more attention to the promotion of organizations that are independent, that are not directly tied to any foreign government, um, and that um, can allow Chinese universities to feel I know that there's not, we can't completely do away with pressure that they may feel internally about not doing things that are politically incorrect here, politically correct in China, Um, but to do more to protect our environment so that they can at least feel that they have some degree of freedom of expression and freedom of association when they're on American campuses. And right now, many Chinese students believe that they do not have that freedom.
1: Okay, Rory.
3: Yeah, I I think um, I agree with with all of Mary's uh, recommendations and I I would say another aspect to this problem that I think we should raise as a panel is that there just needs to be more coordination across institutions, I, my sense of it is a lot of US universities. um, with, With respect to the China issue and all of the different layers to this that we've raised in this panel already. Um, it's just quite a, complicated, quite, quite a complicated problem. And one of the things that makes it even more complicated is if a U.S. university does take a strong stance in, in one way or another, that might attract the attention of the Chinese government uh, and that might be, get consequences for that university. So I think there's a certain risk aversion um, that's happening because no university wants to be the first mover or be kind of out of step and attract unwanted attention or punishment. And so I, I think there's really a lot of room here for coordination between uh, US universities and the US government to talk about best practices with respect to all of these issues. So how do we protect Chinese students on campus and make sure they have freedom of speech? How do we protect the intellectual climate on campuses? How do we address the espionage issue in a way that's consistent with American values? I think there's a, there's a lot of room here uh, for information sharing and best practice development. I know there's been similar efforts already undertaken in the UK and Australia to try to coordinate across US universities. And I know there's been some efforts uh, among uh, our community at the National Committee to do this, but I think it's something that we need to keep keep moving forward with.
1: So in your paper, you offer some specific uh, prescriptions on how universities in particular should deal with this. And you argue mostly uh, for uh, transparency and, and kind of uh, best practices. Could you go into a little bit more what kind of concrete steps you think uh, American research institutes uh, can take to minimize some of the collateral damage and to essentially avoid people stumbling into uh, quite difficult situations.
3: I think perhaps this lesson has already been learned, but I, I and, and Maggie would be able to speak to this more. Um, but a lot of the initial um, cases coming out of the China initiative were, were not actually focused on espionage per se, but they were focused on grant fraud and individual researchers not properly disclosing. Their ties um, and their affiliations um, throughout the world, but especially with China. And so um, w- you know, we're all professors here. Every professor goes through this sort of conflict of interest, conflict of commitment disclosure system. Um, I think at different universities it's implemented differently and it's taken uh, with varying degrees of seriousness at different universities. And in addition to that, if a if a researcher applies for like an NIH grant or a grant from the NSF, there'll be additional disclosure processes. So um, My sense talking to people is that people are increasingly understanding the seriousness of this particular practice. But again, this is an area where I think there's room for greater coordination, um, potentially greater standard setting by the US government um, and um, in greater communication to researchers about the importance of of doing this the right way and what precisely needs to be disclosed. I think that would help um, with the conflict of interest and and conflict of commitment uh, problems. And then there, there's a question which, again, Maggie has spoken about, um, which is, to what extent are these behaviors criminal? Um, you know, should we be criminalizing uh, when someone doesn't fill out their paperwork properly? Um, that's a... And it, it, maybe that's indicative of some other behavior that they're doing that's problematic, or maybe they made a mistake. Um, and so we need, there's questions about whether or not all of these behaviors that have, have come up in the China Initiative and elsewhere Are they criminal behaviors or are they things that are best dealt with as sort of traditional academic integrity issues? Um, Like we would deal with plagiarism or fraud or something like that within a university where the researcher would be sanctioned by their own institution if they did do something wrong. So I think there's questions about um, that as well. Um, So I'll leave it there because I know Maggie probably has, has a lot of ideas. I do want to turn to Maggie, and I know she's
1: got a lot to say on this issue. And I also want to direct another question at her. But before I do that, there's one that I think is is on this topic here that came in from Brad Farnsworth, where he says several organizations are developing guidelines and policies for higher education engagement with China. Are these collaborative undertakings an effective way to deal with the challenges? Mary, do you have views on it?
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think all universities and and anyone who teaches at a university will recognize that there's been a big increase in um, oversight and processes related to conflict of of interest and conflict of commitment. Um, My main concern about what's happened, well, there's a couple of concerns. One concern I have is whether or not this is best done at the individual university level, uh, or rather, maybe we should be co Cooperating and collaborating to produce a set of best practices um, that can, um, you know, base share information among universities so that we can be most proactive. Um, And I think that would also allow the American universities to speak with perhaps a more unified voice with the the US government and to better understand the US government concerns. Uh, I think the the second concern I have is that the overcorrection. In compliance will be because of a fear of overstepping, partly because the boundaries themselves are very, very difficult to interpret. So which Chinese universities um, are somehow more high risk than others? I don't, I the, the indexes and the things that I've seen on this are are confusing. Uh, and I think what universities will end up doing is overcorrecting because of a lack of clarity of what of where exactly the, the red lines are.
1: I mute myself here. Um, so uh, Maggie, you've been waiting patiently uh, for a long time, and uh, we will turn shortly uh, to some questions about what China does to research uh, on the ground there. But I, I want to continue with this theme first, of uh, what we've been doing wrong and sort of what we should be doing right instead in, in your space, uh, the, particularly the the DOJ, and really it's beyond DOJ. It's also congressional legislation. It's the way the courts are handling it. Uh, what's your prescription for uh, avoiding uh, some of the Uh, consequences and costs we see.
2: And, and Rory's already starting to speak to some of this as far as when we look at the, the criminal side in the DOJ, the National Security Division has really been driving the bus. And, and they see things through a national security lens. That's what they're supposed to do. Uh, one thing I'm hopeful for in the Biden administration is that they have spoken about building capacity across departments and trying to break down some silos. So hopefully, we will hear more voices from outside, just the hardcore sort of NatSec and, and figuring out a better path, including from the Office of the Sciences and technology um, advisor, because we now have a cabinet level science advisor. And that's really a voice that needs to be in here because as we keep talking about, there's a lot of confusion. Um, The laws haven't changed, at least the criminal laws. Economic espionage has been around since the 1990s. What has changed is enforcement priorities. And so as Rory mentioned, a lot of these uh, cases are involving, again, false statements or failure to file on your taxes. And it's not unusual in the criminal realm to have someone charged and even plead guilty to something that is perhaps not the most serious behavior that prosecutors think they have done, but because of evidentiary reasons they've um, charged for a a lesser crime. Or sometimes it's because um, maybe that more serious crime, the economic espionage has not quite yet happened, but the prosecutors see this person being primed essentially to be a conduit and they're going to nip that behavior in the bud. And because it's so opaque in these national security contexts and criminal justice more generally it's hard to know how much those different factors are playing in but there's so much more that could be done for universities to work with the government to streamline and clarify grant reporting requirements so that we can better see when someone is making more of an administrative mistake and then that versus the really more hiding you know hiding the cash under the mattress and the fifty thousand dollars from the Wuhan Technical Institute or whatever it might be because the clearer that differentiation is the more comfortable at least I am with within in the more extreme cases using the heavy hammer of the criminal
1: law and as maggie well knows one of the common uh, critiques uh, from our part of the world of china's legal system is the ambiguity Uh, where is the red line when do you cross it and the the chilling and intimidating effect of not knowing what exactly will get you into trouble and in some sense we're replicating uh, the things that we often uh, criticize Uh, in others. Um, There's a question in the chat, which goes back to Mary's earlier comment, (coughs) excuse me, uh, from Mary Alice Mazzara of SUNY, uh, who says she worked with a a Confucius Institute for 10 years, had a very positive experience, likes the idea of an off-campus opportunity, uh, but she asks, and I will throw this to the entire group in a more general form, uh, is it possible to do this in the current environment? Uh, And and here I know uh, Rory and Maggie want to speak to it too, but we do have uh, this, this flood of legislation in Congress, you know, things like the Confucius Act, uh, things like uh, uh, framing the American Jobs Plan, partly as competition with China, uh, the uh, Secure American, uh, Camp, uh, American Science and Technology Act, Protect Our Universities Act, Secure Campus Act, all this stuff, the political environment's pretty dicey for anything that sounds... Are remotely cooperative so let me throw the question first to mary specifically about a non-ci off-campus alternative and then to maggie and rory to address the political climate uh for taking down some of the um uh, i think what you would describe as overreach uh in in expressing concern with uh, with uh, china's engagement with american research institutes uh so mary first
4: So that's a good question, and I have to say, I mean, uh, the Confucius Institute at the University of Michigan, which was on campus for, uh, I believe, 10 years, was was an organization that we partnered with that did some actually really excellent programming, and in particular, it could do programming at a very, very high level with um, really massive amounts of, I think, support from the Ministry of Education in China to, for example, bring very large troops of of artists, uh, of performing artists. And that's something I think that we will regret if we if we don't have. Um, and therefore, I actually believe that having um, freestanding entities is the only way to go because it will be much more transparent, will not be embedded within universities. The budgets will be separate uh, and we can see what it is very clearly. I think Confucius Institutes were problematic partly because they confused people and their, their governance structure was opaque. So I think having um, a regulatory and a legal framework, which we certainly have in the United States, to allow Confucius Institutes um, to be established uh, as freestanding entities. That, that they should go forward and do so. Um, and I don't believe that the U.S. government should stand in their way.
0: Right. Yeah, and just more
2: generally speaking, just sort of the the zeitgeist, and um, and and certainly, you know, this word engagement has become um, so problematic that somehow, if you believe in engaging with China, that's getting conflated with almost complicity. Uh, and and so, in some ways, I start using the word connectivity with China. And and I tell people all the time, like I'm perfectly able to engage with people and disagree with them. Uh, and so, I think that we um, part of it is just pushing back on this idea that having contact is always going to be some sort of you know, awful influence operation. Um, because if we really do want to deal with these huge issues like climate um, change, like pandemics, there will be more in the future, we do need to keep working to have that connectivity. Um, so I agree that the atmosphere in D.C. Um, is, is really difficult and at times toxic when it comes to doing anything with China. Uh, the Strategic Competition Act, which is framed in terms of China is 281 pages, there's everything in the kitchen sink in there. There's a lot of activity, um, but we do need to try to work to bring the temperature down enough uh, that we can have debates that are based in and, and real, f- at least fact to the extent that we can um, and make it so that everything isn't so um, isn't so jacked up that it's, it's becoming increasingly polarized.
1: Hey, Rory, do you wanna to speak to this?
3: Yeah, I, I can speak quickly. I mean, Mary and Maggie said it better than I ever could. I, I think the two things I'm noticing Uh, that are worrisome is this, the nature of discourse on China right now is just so toxic, Um, and folks like us um, wind up being caught in the middle. Uh, If you say something negative about the CCP, you get attacked by uh, Chinese nationalists, some of whom may be backed by the Chinese government. If you say anything remotely neutral about China or talking about the need to work with China on an issue or engage with China in a certain way, uh, you can be labeled very quickly kind of a useful idiot for the CCP. So, I think just the, the nature of discourse has just gotten so toxic. And I, I think uh, we as a community and, and hopefully beyond need to push for nuance. And it's nuance is not something that's often celebrated in US politics, but a lot of these issues are complicated. And the issue, the, the simplest solution is just to cut off, but cutting off C, CIs or cutting off all the different things. Um, all the different relationships we've talked about is not necessarily in the best interest of the United States. So I think there just needs to be a broader push for nuance and civility in this debate and realizing that people can come from different point of views and not necessarily be backed uh, by some sort of nefarious, uh, nefarious influence. Um, and then the second thing uh, to, to go to Mary's point, I think we need to have faith in our own, and the strength of our own uh, academic and university cultures uh, to withstand some of these pressures Um, So just as an example, you know, there is a phenomenon where if a a university campus holds a sensitive event, you know, an event on Xinjiang or Hong Kong or whatever it is, there might be some mobilization uh, from some students on campus, uh, some of whom might be Chinese citizens, against the event because they'll view it as an affront to China. I have never really viewed that mobilization as that, all that threatening. I think that it would be threatening if, if we start to stop those events and stop having events on these important topics. But protest is part of American culture. And I think if a student wants to come and protest my event in a civil way, um, as long as they're you know not disrupting the event, as long as the event is allowed to continue, I think that's that's... Part of of what U.S. campuses are all about. So I hope um, one thing that we all internalize is the need to celebrate kind of the open society and the open campus, and and um, just understand that those sorts of incidents are going to happen, and that doesn't, again, that's not something that we should be scared of.
1: Yeah, I agree completely, and we've certainly seen that. And there's a real risk of the heckler's veto, it seems to me, in, in two places. One is the pressure against ostensibly critical of China events on campus, and the other is, as you say, the, the uh, lack of tolerance for subtlety and, and nuance. I mean, the constructive engagement may be over. We're, we're gonna be tougher on China, but there's a risk that it's gotten uh, narrowed to a particularly uh, harsh uh, band of that spectrum. Um, so we've uh, got a couple of questions in, in here um, on the, the follow-up and some of the things we've been doing so far. Um, one from Sophie Richardson at uh, Human Rights Watch that I think dovetails with some of what you've been talking about, about and Rory's uh, comments just now on the values of openness and, uh, and sort of liberal exchange of views on American campuses. And Sophie asks, uh, all of us, all of you, uh, what advice are you giving fellow academics about how best to help ensure academic freedom on a regular or daily basis Uh, for mainland Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Tibet, Uyghur, et cetera, students, uh, meaning leaving aside the kinds of constraints that can be brought to bear by CSSAs, et cetera. How can scholars best be attuned to and try to mitigate those those constraints? How do we make sure Chinese students on our campuses uh, or greater China students on our campuses can enjoy the values that Rory and the opportunities Rory was just talking about? Uh, I'll arbitrarily start with Maggie, Mary, and uh, then Rory.
2: So first hi Sophie. Um I know this is something which I can't tell you how many email chains and conversations um, we've been having amongst uh, professors, and, and especially when we went remote uh, because of also security concerns on, on various platforms. Uh, Zoom got a lot of attention, but it's it's not the only one. That uh, there are concerns about who else might have access, or just even the people who are supposed to be on that um, on that call, and where that information might end up. Uh, I would say that you know, so fundamentally, first um, even before um, the pandemic or the current climate, I don't think that universities were doing a great job of integrating Chinese students and foreign students more generally into campus life and there were a lot of reports about not feeling like a real sense of belonging and so that they were finding that they were spending more time uh, with other foreign students from wherever they might be from and so I think that's part of it. We need to continue to struggle um, with trying to figure out how to do that better. I actually started studying Chinese because uh, a teacher from Shanghai I lived with my family in Madison, Wisconsin in 1985 um, so good old-fashioned good old fashioned person-to-person interaction I think is important important here. Um, I also think that, you know, there are real security concerns. I'm, I'm in Taiwan. I've got the, the mangoes and the orchid behind me to prove it. Um, and, you know, that's sensitive. You know, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, I do it all. Um, I, I was teaching a human rights course. And I didn't, I actually, I didn't know if any of my students had family or, you know, what their ties might be to China. But I just made clear on the syllabus, if there's a time that we're talking about an issue, and you don't want to participate, I will find an alternative way to either speak to you privately about that. But I think we're going also being aware that we need to think about you know should we be cold calling students um, when there might be security concerns and I, I don't think we've reached a point where we found like the answer but that we're having these conversations uh, is really important because these issues are not going away anytime soon. Yeah I think
1: that's right it, it, it's it's been a, something like all university professors have wrestled with because on the one hand you don't want to put people in a position where they feel like they're putting themselves at risk on the other hand to uh, uh essentially allow absenting from the discourse takes away some of the value uh, to them and i will say one thing that has been impressive is although clearly many students do feel pressure there are some students who are utterly fearless <laughs> I mean, who will just who will just as uh, they came uh, f- to express and, and and learn the you know stress these views learn whatever they can learn and they they still do it but um there are obviously many who are concerned and, and the zoom thing of course amplified that a great deal uh let me turn it over to mary and then rory
4: yeah. Um, thanks. Uh, this is a great question. The um, And just like Maggie, I think all of us have been figuring out ways in which my dog is very exercised about this topic. Um, We've been figuring out ways to deal with this on an individual level as individual uh, faculty teaching Chinese students. Um, I want to just say two points. One is that we sh- Chinese students, even from the mainland, are not monolithic at all. They have diverse views. Um, those diverse views should be tolerated, they should be encouraged. I think the concern, and this is uh, the what I tried to emphasize in the paper, is that the concern is when organizations amplify one voice, right? Amplify um, kind of the mainstream voice that w- might be coming out of mainland China and might be more clearly um, associated with the Chinese government's own views. Um, organizations can amplify those voices. WeChat uh, as the sole device for Chinese students to communicate on American campuses also amplifies one voice. So what we should be trying to do, and we have the ability to do it as Rory is pointing out, is to use our own organizations and institutions um, to provide venues for diverse voices. Now, some voices will still struggle to be heard, right? When you teach on Xinjiang in a class, your mainland students are going to, um, they're gonna be quiet. Um, and they're gonna be quiet, not because of what you're saying. Um, even if they disagree with you, they're going to be quiet because I think of the pressure um, that they may feel um, internally or because of a pressure from other students. So I think there are things that we can do to mitigate that. We can't completely control it, but I think we can mitigate that. Um, so thank you.
3: I, I think Maggie Mary said it very well. I mean, for me, it's always just been about um, connecting with the students as much as you can and trying to understand their point of view. And, and um, to Maggie's point of developing flexible options for them. Um, for my PhD students, I just generally have a rule of, you know, find a topic where you feel comfortable studying it. Don't feel pressured to study one thing. Um, find, a, find a topic where you can do the work you want to do in a way that you, can, you, you don't feel um, scared. Um, and that's that's the my students people who do what we do and who are Chinese or Chinese Americans even who have relationships deeper family relationships in China, I think it is that they, they are courageous and I think that should be celebrated and protected. And so, people who are taking our classes who are, who are Chinese, I think that is also a small act of courage. Um, and so I think trying to work with them um, to protect them, but also as, to Jock's point, not create an environment of fear or self censorship uh, too much. I think there's just such a. De- delicate balance. And I think the the last point I would say is there, I also am really concerned about stigmatization of this population on campus, because the moment we start talking really openly about Confucius Institutes or CSSAs or monitoring by the Chinese government on campus and so on and so forth, if we elevate those issues too much on our campuses, very quickly, Chinese students might be viewed with suspicion in our classrooms. And that's certainly not what we want. And so there's no easy answer. And I think we all struggle with this. And I think we're all just trying to work with the students on an individual basis. Okay,
1: I want to to save a few minutes at the end to talk about the impact on uh, study in China and research in China. Before turning to that, I want to pick up on a thread that Rory just raised, which is quite prominent in American politics and society discussing these issues today, which is essentially racism uh, toward Asian-American, Pacific Islanders, and Chinese nationals in the US. Uh, There's been a lot of. Uh, talk about that. We have one question from Richard Kagan in, in the uh, Q and A section, asking how do we deal with the anti Chinese, anti Asian attacks or prejudice in the educational system? Uh, we just saw the COVID Hate Crimes Act uh, passed, with I think only Josh Hawley dissenting in the Senate. Um, so yeah, there's there's um, there's a lot of discourse there. Uh, are we getting it right on that front? Is this helpful? And, and how do we deal with the problem, which I think uh, can accurately be dubbed dubbed as uh, prejudice or racism? Um, Maggie, do you want to start with this?
2: Yeah, no, great question. And uh, you know, my I'm, I'm a China studies person and this is the first time in my career I've worked so much with the Asian American community because um, those have been quite separate with good reason. There's no reason that someone who grew up in the United States who has DNA that traces back to to China uh, should know more about Xi Jinping than I do, right? And so we're suddenly seeing that especially as uh, foreign policy is increasingly reverberating domestically um, with the rise in discrimination and actual violence against AAPI communities and foreign nationals who present as Asian in some way, um, that we're finding that those conversations are happening more. Um, One thing that I've been pointing out when I speak to my my Chinese counterparts in the PRC is um, this point about civil society. Um, that we have organizations like AAJC, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, um, and others that have been around a long time that are now um, even more in the forefront. But we're also seeing these new organizations that are being formed, the Chinese American Scholar Forum, APA Justice. And and one point I make is if you want to invite your friends over to your living room and create an organization and make t-shirts, you can do that. That's called freedom of association and freedom of assembly. Um, If you want to get tax benefits, then yeah, you have to file 501c3. But um, you know, trying to emphasize that this strength of being able to organize. Um, but um, it is really frightening, and I and I think that the Biden administration is, is starting is really showing with the, not only passing into law the COVID hate crimes act, but also more generally, um, really an awareness of of how serious this is. Um, but this is going to be a long term project. This is not something that you just uh, change by signing into you know into law one single measure.
1: Uh, Mary.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have that much more to say than what Maggie has already said. This is a huge issue, um, not just on campuses, but in American society, the um, the huge explosion of anti-Asian racism and violence. Um, it was already on the uptick, I think, prior to COVID, but COVID has really amplified it. And uh, on American campuses, I think um, one thing we do see is is greater mobilization of the Asian community and the Asian American community in a way that I actually have never seen on American campuses. So I'm hoping to see more of that. And I think it it kind of directly uh, answers the call that I have in my own paper, which is to um, better promote diversity of organizations um, that can bring together people of Chinese descent, Asian-Americans who can be more unified about these issues of racism. Because of course, racism uh, towards Asian-Americans is is not just affecting people of Chinese descent. Um, And so again, and Maggie is completely right. This is one of the ways in which uh, our society can be more responsive to these these kinds of acts of violence and hatred.
3: Rory? I, I actually I think I conveyed my my thought earlier in my previous comments so we can. Okay, let to say just one note
1: here that when a lot of this started, the sort of COVID era, I think the initial panic on a lot of university campuses was are Chinese students and scholars going to be able to come to the U.S. The visa restrictions and uh, and all of those measures, but it really has morphed uh, increasingly into a question of are they going to want to come to the U.S. Uh, because of the the sense of a hostile environment. We all hear this from our Chinese interlocutors, uh, and uh, you know it's it. it it is hitting obviously Asian American Pacific Islanders who are U.S. citizens, but they're here, and uh, you know this is a society that uh, they fully live in and are, are part of. For people who have the option of coming to the U.S. or not, this is I think something we're all watching, and we just don't really have full information yet about uh, that impact. But it's certainly anecdotally a concern. Uh, we hear a lot about. Um, so we have a uh, few minutes we have left here. We have a few questions about uh, essentially the other side of this, that is the question of U.S programs, educational programs, and U.S. scholars uh, going to China to do their work. So I'll, I'll pair two questions together here and then uh, throw it in order to uh, Mary, Maggie, and Rory, I think. And this may get us to the, just about the end of our time here. Uh, so I have a question from Mort Holbrook who asks, please discuss party control of U.S. educational programs in China, such as Hopkins, Nanjing, Duke, uh, and the many other programs. Are there rigid controls on course materials, class discussions? Are certain topics off limits such as Tiananmen? Is there widespread self-censorship? Basically, that, that cluster of, of academic freedom to operate these programs in China by U.S. institutions. And then from our colleague at Penn, Nathan Makhbubi says, there is an important dimension to the issue which has to do with sending American students to study in China on the ground. What do you see as the future landscape for that? including in light of the fact that the US government has shut down funding for Fulbright to China and doesn't seem to be revising that decision, but also with a view to US universities' institutional footprint in China itself. Uh, So I think related questions, um, let's uh, have at them in order. And if we have time to squeeze in another one after that, I will.
4: yeah, I I see this these issues with um, organizations that are based in China as quite separate because they are in um, they're in the Chinese academic environment. My sense, although I've never taught at one of these uh, foreign affiliated universities in China, although I've taught at Chinese universities, is that foreign affiliated universities and campuses um, in China are slightly more open than um, a Chinese university um, is. At the same time, I would always be cautious in believing that uh, academic freedom is something that has been guaranteed in a contract. Academic freedom in China does not really exist. It certainly doesn't ex- exist on Chinese universities campuses, and that's more and more the case under um, under Xi Jinping so even uh, at a foreign campus or affiliated campus on uh, Chinese soil, that the academic freedom that is guaranteed, perhaps there's you know more internet um, access and things like that, those things are constantly subject to negotiation and contention, and, and one should never be complacent or believe that those things can just be easily granted. They can be easily granted. They can be easily taken away. Um, for American students who go to China, and of course, we all did this when we were younger, and we continue to encourage our students to do so. Um, I do believe that the United States government should not put more barriers uh, in the way through cancel- cancelization of the Fulbright. At the same time, it is the environment in, in China for academic research um, is, is bad, and it's not getting any better. And um, it will make it increasingly difficult for us to do our research. It'll make it increasingly difficult for American students to go to China. Um, and, and to do any kind of um, field work and, and, and research. And that is, um, that is not only the fault of, of, of what's been going on in the US. A lot of it has to do with domestic um, politics within China. So I'm very pessimistic about our ability to stop this academic decoupling that Rory mentioned um, earlier, but at, at least we should not be actively putting barriers uh, in the way.
2: I agree with Mary that I think it's going to be slow to see uh, students and even scholars going back to China. Uh, I think the pandemic restrictions are going to stay in place for a while. Um, and even if people can go, uh, quarantine is hard. I, I, I did 15 nights of quarantine with my six and eight-year-old um, in Taiwan, and I would not recommend it, but we survived. So there's also those barriers. But even once we get past that, um, then I, I think that Rory talks about in his paper, for example, what kind of pre-departure briefings should be had. And, and that should be for any country. One of my least favorite things to do in Taiwan is find defense attorneys for uh, students who come over and and don't realize that marijuana is taken very seriously here. So, you know, giving risk about security, about what are the local laws, these are things that should be done as part of any risk analysis that goes into sending uh, students abroad. Um, And then on the academic freedom issue, I can't speak to Duke Kunshan or NYU Shanghai. I haven't been a student there or taught there. I can say as a proud alumna of the Hopkins Nanjing Center, I was most recently there in uh, 2018, gave a speech that touched on Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang. I think everything senses if possible, if academic freedom at Hopkins Nanjing disappears, then, then it really is a dark day. I think that's going to be uh, the strongest, um, strongest one, and and I hope that at least the Hopkins Nanjing Center can continue to be um, some a beacon of of having real open discourse, even if limited in space.
3: Rory, um, so I, I was involved uh, with a project with Sheena Chestnut Greitens uh, a few years ago that examined the research context. This was all pre COVID. Um, for people studying China. And we tried to measure repressive experiences for people who were traveling to China. So were you taken for tea? Uh, Did you um, have trouble getting access to an archive? These sorts of things. And our general conclusion at that time was that these sorts of experiences were rare, but they were real. Um, But they were also sort of bounded in scope, meaning that, you know, in general, the Chinese government wasn't um, detaining people for, you know, at length, um, it was denying visas, but it—you know—the—the the, it wasn't frankly that scary. And I think one of the things that's happened in the last few years is some of the tools that are being used are scarier. Um, we've seen Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor detained um, for two years without trial, if I'm—if I'm remembering correctly. Um, we've seen sanctions against our colleagues, sanctions against individual researchers. There's also the rise of exit bans, um, the threats of lawsuits. And so I think for individual researchers, perhaps I'm being anxious and paranoid. I I think we've all been talking and researching about China for so long, and the Chinese government has indicated that it's not exactly excited about a lot of the research that's going on. And I do think that will call into question how we do research, um, and by extension, what we say to our students. And so I think in general, undergraduates going to China is a great thing. That's what we all did. Um, they need to go there. They need to study Chinese and they need to get embedded in the, in the country and the culture. Um, I think that's probably still fairly benign. I think sending an undergraduate out to China to do three weeks of thesis research with little to no training and support might be a little more problematic these days. And so I think if one of the things I struggle with is what do I say to PhD students or undergraduates? What kind of advice can I give them about research when the research context is, is seems to be changing uh, so quickly? So I think that's just an open question for all of us to think through.
1: Well, on a happy note, i have run up against our our time here, but I do share those concerns. And I I think I'm by a good margin, the senior most of the four people on this panel uh, and have this feeling of having watched this sort of rise and fall of of the great moments of access and interchange. And hopefully this is a a limited downturn. Although as all of our panelists have suggested, there's a lot to be uh, concerned about, but there's also some things we can do. Uh, to try to mitigate the downward spiral and to try to claw some things back. Well, I, I thank very much uh, Mary Gallagher, Maggie Lewis, and Rory Truex for being part of this panel this morning. I thank the National Committee uh, for hosting this. If you want to read more of uh, of what we were talking about today, you can find Rory, Mary, and Maggie's papers on the Penn Future of US-China Relations website, as well as papers on a bunch of other projects. And I will here confess that our our program on the future of US-China relations has shamelessly pilfered uh, from the Public Intellectuals Project to the National Committee. Uh, With that, I will uh, call this to a close, except to throw it back to Jessica Bissett to take us out. And to thank you all for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Jack. I really wish we had more time to answer everyone's questions but we are unfortunately out of time and we we really submitted some great questions. So thank you so much. Uh, the National Committee thanks Chuck, Mary, Rory for their thoughtful remarks, and Maggie, sorry, for their thoughtful remarks. And we hope that audience members who enjoyed this program will return for future National Committee programs. Thanks again to our good friends at the Penn Project and the Future of US-China Relations for partnering with us. And we look forward to collaborating with you again in the future. I also wanted to thank my National Committee colleagues who made this program possible. It truly takes a village, so thank you. And of course, thank you to the audience for tuning in, being engaged, and asking great questions. We hope you enjoyed the program and found it informative. Thanks again, take care, and have a good weekend. Thanks, everyone. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.